Hello, and welcome to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for all of us who are looking for faith beyond the fences. Thanks for listening to this episode. This is episode nine of the podcast. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about deconstructing Lent. And this is actually going to be the first part of a four-part series where we're going to be looking at spiritual deconstruction during the season of Lent through the lens of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is a particular teaching of Jesus that appears in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew in the New Testament. So Lent is, for those of us who come from a, you know, a Christian tradition, the Jesus tradition um, is language I'm becoming a little more comfortable with. Lent is this six-week period leading up to Easter, and so it begins with Ash Wednesday, which this year is the last Wednesday in February, and it's sort of um, observed as um, a day of reflection, kind of a, sh- a somber day to reflect on our shared humanity. And then the season goes all the way up through Easter Sunday when, again, people in the tradition that I come from celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I know just those first couple of sentences um, of this episode of the podcast are already really loaded with religious language, right? Like Lent, Easter, Ash Wednesday, resurrection. And, And I know that I, at least traditionally in this podcast so far, I've tried to steer away from a lot of that, like really specifically religious language, because this podcast tends um, a little more towards sort of the post-institutional side of Christianity. And I've, I've learned from my own deconstruction, and we've talked about that on the podcast here before, and also from walking through deconstruction with other folks that it's just important to acknowledge that language itself can be problematic, especially for people who have been um, disenfranchised by the institutional or the traditional church. And, and so anything that can sound you know, particularly like churchy language or religious language can sometimes you know, even be triggering for some of the traumas that people have experienced. And so you might ask why I would even go there uh, for this kind of podcast. And the reason is, I think that even for folks who are in some some stage of deconstruction or reconstruction, or for people who are, like I said, looking for some kind of faith beyond kind of traditional institutional structures, or for people who just, you know, they've, they've had to, they've found themselves where, they felt like they just had to leave organized religion, but they still have this hope that there's something that they can still hang on to, right? I think there might be something in our tradition of the season of Lent that that maybe can be instructive, maybe hopefully can be a little helpful. So this year for Lent, as as we've been getting this accidental tomatoes project, movement, community, off the ground and trying to connect folks who are in that place of seeking out and 
experiencing faith and spirituality beyond the walls of traditional religious structures, I thought I thought it might be interesting to take a look at this particular set of Jesus's teachings. And, and there are opinions that differ over whether what we call the Sermon on the Mount was something that Jesus kind of kind of preached all at once, or if the writer of the Gospel of Matthew collected all of these different things and edited them into kind of one, you know, one set of teachings. And, and I don't, you know, it's th- that's a debate for another time, but I do all of this not as a way of evangelizing or proselytizing or trying to recruit you, uh, you know, into an institution that you're not comfortable with, nothing like that. But, but I really would like to see how these teachings might help us together walk through maybe kind of a microcosm of deconstruction that can help us have some context for it in a broader sense. And so for this episode and for the next three episodes that will air during the season of Lent, I, I want to take a look at what we call the Sermon on the Mount, again, which appears in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. And it's this collection of passages that contain some of Jesus's most well-known teachings, things like what we call the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. What we call the Lord's Prayer that if you've been in church, you've probably heard repeated, you know, weekly or on a regular basis. Those things and many other things that are pretty common teachings come from this set of teachings that we call the Sermon on the Mount. But this sermon also contains some things that I I think are pretty widely misunderstood and pretty commonly maybe misinterpreted. And I think if we can begin to see some of those things in a little bit different light or through a different lens or perspective than maybe they've traditionally been handed to us, we might see that there's a story there, maybe a story behind the story and better than the story that most of us have inherited. So, like I said, again, the Sermon on the Mount occupies the entirety of chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, the book of Matthew in the New Testament. But to fully grasp the things that the writer of Matthew quotes Jesus as saying in those passages, we need to back up a little to the end of chapter 4, which is essentially where, according to the book of Matthew, Jesus begins his public ministry. So in Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 to 25, which is the very end of chapter 4, Jesus comes on the scene and we hear him echoing what we have heard in an earlier chapter of Matthew, where Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, is calling people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And that phrase, you know, put it in quotation marks, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, we have to understand that little phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, if we're going to understand at all what Jesus will be saying later in the Sermon on the Mount. Because that phrase, to me anyhow, is really actually the entire context 
for what the writer of Matthew will spend the next three chapters unpacking. And I should probably kind of clarify when I continue to say the writer of the book of Matthew instead of just saying Matthew. And I might I might catch myself kind of falling into that habit as we go forward. So I ask your forbearance and forgiveness. We don't know who wrote the book of Matthew, right? We don't have the original texts and the original documents. We can assume that there was this guy named Matthew who was one of Jesus's followers who led an early community, actually the earliest community of Jewish people who were following the way of Jesus. And so we attribute this gospel to this person named Matthew. Uh, but I try to I try to be pretty clear to say that like we don't know if this guy Matthew actually wrote this book or not. So just to give you some context for the language I'm using. So if we understand that phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, we see that that is a phrase that again is loaded with like Christianese religious language in our in our present context, right? It's loaded with language that carries a lot of baggage for a lot of us because at least a couple of the words in that phrase, particularly the words repent and heaven, have very, very, very often been weaponized to try to scold or shame people into believing something particular about the Christian message. So mostly what I think most of us hear when we hear that phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, what we hear is something like, you are a horrible person and you are going to burn in the fires of hell for eternity if you don't change your ways. I mean, I think that's certainly the way a lot of Christian traditions have interpreted that phrase and have used that phrase. But actually at least in my opinion, through the studies that I've done and through trying to kind of contextualize the teaching itself, I, I don't think that interpretation could be further from what Jesus actually means when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That word repent, which gets translated from a Greek word, which is metanoia, Metanoia simply means to change direction, to, to turn around, right? And so where modern Christianity often uses that word repent to mean something like, you know, to admit your sinful behavior and never do it again, what Jesus means by it, again, in context, in my opinion, is something much, much, much more radical. For Jesus, the idea of repentance has far less to do with individual confession, although, to be honest, that's probably a part of what he's saying, but it has much more to do with, with what I like to call a radical reorientation of your life. It's not just saying that you're sorry for something you've done wrong and you'll never do it again. What it's essentially saying is, I used to follow this story or this narrative about life, but now I'm going to follow this one. I'm going to follow this Jesus story. I'm going to radically reorient my way of being. I'm going to arrange my life around this Jesus 
story, the way that Jesus says that reality should be. And so that story that has Jesus in the middle of it is what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven. And that's that other set of words in that phrase that is so loaded. Again, when most Christians today use that term, the kingdom of heaven, I think most of them are referring to some faraway place on big white fluffy clouds with golden harps where your disembodied soul travels to after you die. It's this sort of evacuation theology. But for Jesus's first century audience, their particular expectations of that term, the kingdom of heaven, had very, very, very specific and very historical and theological implications. For devout first century Jews, the kingdom of heaven meant that Yahweh, their name for God, was going to assert God's will and rule in their nation once again. It was a very specific understanding of what that phrase meant. And so, for most of them in that particular time in human history, what that meant for the kingdom of heaven to be coming was that the occupying polytheistic Roman Empire was about to get kicked out of Israel so that Israel could be ruled by Yahweh, be ruled by the God that they believed was the one true God in opposition to the many gods that the Romans worshipped. And so, but even for many of those people, that idea had its own specific connotations, right? That idea of the kingdom of heaven for various um, groups or sects within Judaism at the time, there were varying beliefs about exactly how and when Yahweh would intervene in their struggles with Rome. And Jesus will address those various groups and sects as, as his sermon progresses. But for now, I think it's enough that we see that the phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, wasn't intended as a way of, um, a way of sowing fear into people. It was a way of sowing hope for people. So there's, there's sort of our first pillar of deconstruction. We're not really even into the Sermon on the Mount yet. But it's that language that has so often been used to shame and punish people in religious circles might actually mean something else altogether. It might mean something better, that something that instead of crushing people's souls might actually give them some hope. At Accidental Tomatoes, we're building a community of people looking for ways to find faith and spirituality beyond the walls and fences of the traditional church. While our blog and our podcast are always absolutely free, if you'd like to go deeper with more resources and conversations, we invite you to support us through the Patreon platform. For as little as $2 a month, you can receive bonus content, including a monthly newsletter, patrons-only commentary, and much, much more. Just go to patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes to learn how. And now, back to the podcast. So the next thing that Jesus does in that section of, of chapter 4 of the book of Matthew that, that I tend to refer to as the prologue to the Sermon on the Mount 
is that Jesus tells these four fishermen to drop their nets and follow him. And he uses this like really familiar Sunday school phrase that, that, you know, those of us who come from church world certainly know it. And, and it's even pretty, a pretty popular phrase in the culture, right? Follow me and I will make you fishers of people or fishers of men in the patriarchal language of, uh, of the early interpreters of the Bible. But, you know, honestly, in my opinion, that phrase has really become kind of a trite and overused trope for what would actually have been, again, in context, an action that was packed with symbolic meaning in its historical time and place for the first people who would have heard this story being told. There was all kinds of symbolic meaning to what happens when these fishermen, these two sets of brothers who are named Andrew and Simon Peter, and then these other brothers, James and John, who the text tells us are sons of Zebedee. I talked about them and um, the sons of Zebedee in an earlier podcast. So these guys are are sitting in their boats with their fathers, fishing in the Sea of Galilee with these large nets. And the, the implication was that these were commercial fishermen. In fact, it's it's really unlikely that people in that time would have even had any concept of recreational fishing as we know it. These These guys weren't fishing for fun. They were doing it because it was their job. It was the family business. There was a robust fishing economy in the particular region where they lived along the Sea of Galilee. And I think the reason that this is interesting from a deconstruction standpoint is the fact that these guys were fishing with their fathers tells us something about them. It tells us who they are. It tells us that, for one thing, that they were very average people. Again, in that culture of the time, men, and and it was almost exclusively men, who became disciples to rabbis, which is what we're going to see happening here. And rabbis are teachers and disciples are people who who try to learn to be like the rabbi or the teacher. So most of the people who did that, most of the disciples to rabbis, were like the best and the brightest young people in their communities. They were the ones who could memorize scripture and debate complex theological concepts. In in our language, they would be the straight-A students, right? The kids in the gifted class. And so if Andrew and Simon Peter and James and John were fishing with their fathers, what that tells us is that they were probably young men learning the family trade. And if they were learning the family trade, that meant that they were not considered, you know, like academically promising enough to follow any of the rabbis in the area. But following a rabbi was like, that was that was sort of a flag of honor in the, in a culture that was based on honor and patronage which is probably the topic for a whole other podcast in a culture like that for a teacher like Jesus to come along and invite these guys to follow him would have been like not just a feather in their cap but for their whole families like this was a big deal So this is maybe deconstruction pillar number two 
um, in this prologue passage, right? The first disciples of Jesus were not the intellectual elites of their time. They were young, average, working-class dudes, right? They, they were the scrubs. They were they were the kids on the bench of the freshman team that gets called up to play for the varsity for a playoff game, right? That, that's that's the kind of context that we're that we need to see this passage in that Jesus is calling these average everyday guys to this very very honored position right and so just to keep moving forward right the the last point of this passage at, at the end of chapter 4 of Matthew is that the next thing that Jesus does is is to travel around the region, which would be like the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, you know, teaching in the synagogues, which would be like the, the local community churches, which is what rabbis at the time did. So he went around teaching in the synagogues and he was healing people from all kinds of illnesses. Now, again, to take kind of a traditionalist view of the idea that Jesus healed people is generally to assign, you know, like supernatural divinity to Jesus, right? That's that's sort of what we say when we see these he- healing miracles is that's proof, right? That Jesus has power over the laws of nature and, and proof of Jesus's divinity. Now, I'm not saying that that's not true, but but I am saying that I don't really think that's the point that the writer is trying to make. The reason that healing was important was not to prove that Jesus could do miracles, but but it was because that people with the kinds of illnesses that are listed in verses 23 to 25 of Matthew chapter 4, and you can read that for yourself if you want, that list of illnesses, those were things that were considered to be ritually unclean according to Jewish law. Which meant that if you were ritually unclean, that meant that you were excluded from the religious and the social life of the community until you were somehow made ritually clean again. So these people that Jesus is healing are the outcasts, right? They're the exiles. They're the marginalized. They're the oppressed. In many cases, they were the persecuted people in their society. What the writer of Matthew is trying to tell us is precisely who Jesus's message is for, right? And here, here's a hint. It's not the wealthy or the privileged or the comfortable. It's not for the religious or the political or the economic, economically powerful or elite. It's for the people on the fringes of society. It's for the nobodies that nobody wants to be around. And so that's how the writer of Matthew sets up what is, in in my opinion, probably Jesus's most well-known sermon, right? So there again, we are we're deconstructing some of these common traditional ways of looking at this story. And for me, learning to see all of that in, in that in that deconstruction kind of light has made a massive difference in how I began to read and how I currently read and am trying to understand this thing we call the Sermon on the Mount. So that's that's the backstory, right? I know that's kind of a long bit of 
of history and explanation. But I think it's necessary that we see that backstory so we can really understand what we're going to be unpacking these next few episodes, right? It's Jesus bringing hope to the hopeless. It's this message of radical reorientation to a way of being that is centered not in the seats of power and privilege, but in the persecuted and the oppressed. And that's where it's going to be carried forward, right? By these very, very average people. So does that does that put a different perspective on anything for you as we begin to dig in to the Sermon on the Mount? I, ho- I hope it does, right? Because I think, again, that context helps us to see things um, in, in what, for me anyhow, is, is the light of a better story. And so the Sermon on the Mount itself, when we finally get to Matthew chapter 5, the sermon starts with this section that we call the Beatitudes. And Beatitudes is just kind of a fancy word for blessings. And so it's this list of the type of people who, according to Jesus, God sees as blessed. And when you read through that list, right, the poor in spirit, the humble, the mourning, the merciful, the peacemakers, the seekers of real righteousness, right, the seekers of justice, what you see is a bunch of people who would never in their lives have imagined themselves as being blessed at all. In fact, most of them probably believed that their lives had been cursed. They had probably, in fact, been told over and over and over again that they were cursed by the people who were on the inside, the people who were from the seats of power and privilege. But here was Jesus saying that if you found yourself in these conditions, God is actually on your side. I heard a sermon by um, Rob Bell, who is a writer and and kind of a public theologian one time, and and he read that list of, of the Beatitudes of the blessings. And instead of saying, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, he would say, if you're poor in spirit, God is on your side. If you are meek and humble, God is on your side. If you are merciful, God is on your side, right? And I think that language is really helpful for us to see how these folks would have heard Jesus saying this to them. Because I think for them, that would have been an absolutely revolutionary concept that God was actually on their side. Because everything in their society told them the exact opposite, right? That they were enemies of God, that they were not on God's side. Now, I think we do have to be a little careful here because Jesus is not saying that you have to become poor in spirit or meek or merciful or justice-oriented in order to gain God's favor. What he's saying is just simply that God actually cares for the people whose society has told them that they were enemies of God, that they that they were not in God's favor. So again, this is this is a bit of deconstruction around how we might traditionally view this text. I think the way we usually hear it is, you know, from our kind of modern privileged perspective, the way we usually hear it is that poor people get to go to heaven too, just like rich privileged people do. And I think the reason for that is because the way that we tend to read the Bible, especially in 
20th and 21st century white evangelical churches is through the lens of privilege. But the Bible is literature of the oppressed and literature for the oppressed. And so we have to learn to read the Bible through the lens of the oppression that its original audience was experiencing. So, so let's keep going because there's one more little bit of information that I want to cover in this, in this first part of this series. So after Jesus tells all of the nobodies that nobody wants to be around, that they actually do have worth and value. He tells them this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 17, and I'm reading specifically from uh, a, a version of the Bible called the Common English Bible. This is what Jesus says in that translation. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand and it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. Now, the, the kind of patriarchal language for God at the end of that passage notwithstanding, these words have some really specific meaning for the first century Jews who would have been the first people to hear it. So if we go way back into the Old Testament, into the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, which, by the way, is far less about trying to explain scientifically how the world was created and is much more about providing Israel with some backstory for their own racial and cultural identity. There's this story where God supposedly promises a guy named Abraham that Abraham's family will become a blessing to the whole world, that, that Abraham's family will become a great nation that will be a blessing to the world. And as it turns out, Abraham's family, Abraham's descendants, become the people of what, what eventually becomes the nation of Israel, right? And, and, and the people of, of Judaism, right? Of the Jewish religion. So that part of Israel's story was so important that it says that God made a covenant, a contractual promise with Abraham to make that promise come true. And Abraham's side of the covenant was that his family would do exactly what God says they will do, bless the rest of the world. So Israel has a job to do. Israel has a vocation. And that vocation is to demonstrate for the rest of the world the unconditional, all-encompassing, generous, merciful, kind, compassionate, justice-seeking love of Yahweh. The love of God was to be shown to the world through the people of Israel. And the whole rest of the Old Testament is basically the story of how Israel failed miserably to hold up its end of that covenant. Now, all of that stuff in the Old Testament about God's anger and God's wrath and God's ordering the genocide of 
entire tribes of people is, again, probably the topic for a whole other podcast. Or you could pick up a couple of books by a guy named Pete Enns um, called The Bible Tells Me So and How the Bible Actually Works. Those books, uh, for me anyhow, have have been really helpful to find some much better perspective on those ideas and how they get misinterpreted over the centuries. But that's actually exactly the point Jesus is trying to make, that Israel had been misinterpreting its own story. That instead of seeing itself as a people with a specific purpose in the world to show God's love to the world, it had over and over and over again sought after privilege and power and influence. And those are the kinds of things that always create oppression and marginalization and persecution. So what Jesus is saying in this passage about salt and light is to remind these oppressed, marginalized, persecuted people who were living under the thumb of both the Roman Empire and their own religious leaders that they were still children of God's original promise to Abraham and that they still have this covenant to live into, that they still have a job to do. Be salt. Give the world some flavor. Be light. Shine love out into the dark places of oppression and marginalization. Stop hiding who you are is what Jesus is saying. Stop living by the wrong story. There is a better story. There's a story that's been hidden for generations upon generations upon generations. And that story is actually the reality that God has always intended. Jesus is deconstructing their entire shared cultural and historical narrative. He's replacing power and privilege with purpose and responsibility. And he's calling the least of the least to be the ones to carry that story forward. So in our next episode, we're going to start to unpack exactly how it is that Jesus continues to deconstruct that inherited narrative and how he begins to reconstruct a new way of being in the world, a new way of being human. So if you're the kind of person who wants to to kind of put a little more meat on the bones of this story, I would invite you to go um, check out my blog, joewebwrites.com, where I'm going to be um, I'm going to be writing during the season of Lent about the Sermon on the Mount um, every week with kind of a creative reimagining of the story as it might have been heard by a fictional young person living in that Galilee region um, that kind of finds themselves on the fringes of the crowd that follows Jesus and is trying to make sense of his teaching. So if that's something you're interested in, I would invite you to to jump over to the blog uh, at joewebrights.com and you can kind of follow that story there um, every week as, as those stories get released. So that's it for today's podcast. Thanks again so much for listening. Um, and I hope you've stuck with um, the, whole, the whole length of the podcast here. You can find 
accidental tomatoes and all of the, the resources that we're working on providing um, at accidentaltomatoes.com. And you can find us across the social media world. We are at Accidental Tomatoes. Be sure to, uh, to like and follow our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram pages to get up-to-the-minute updates of what's going on in our community and to participate in the conversations that we're having around these topics. Again, you can find me, Joe Webb, at my website, joewebrights.com, and on social media, I'm at joewebrights. If you have ideas or suggestions for future topics for the podcast, I would love to hear from you. So contact us on Facebook or Twitter, reach out to us there, or you can email us at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I would I would just ask you please to be sure to go throw us up a rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's the way to really help other people find us and connect with our community and to participate in this conversation. So thanks again for listening and keep on growing outside the fences and join us next time for the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. <laughs>